Well, we're at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and so uh, this last week I was thinking about the word love, the description of love, and I started thinking, what songs are the most popular songs today? Uh, you can use songs in a, in a different way. Some of the stuff that I hear on the radio is not really music so much as it is noise, but, but most of the songs that are popular talk about love. Now, trends change, styles change, but what hasn't changed is a desire to be loved and a desire to love. Think about some of these songs. Frank Sinatra's classic, To Love and Be Loved, says this. I'm not going to sing. I, every time I quote a, a song, I know some of you are like, man, sing. No, you don't want to hear that. So I'm just going to read these. To love and be loved, that's what life's all about. Keep the stars coming out. What makes a sad heart sing, the birds take wing. To love and be loved, that's what living is for. Makes me want you the more, the more we cling. What about Jackie Wilson's classic, to be loved, someone to care, someone to share, lonely hours and moments of despair. To be loved and be loved. Oh, what a feeling to be loved. Maybe you like a little more rock and roll in your life, and so the Beatles, All You Need Is Love, has this profound statement, love, 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 all you need is love, all you need is love, all you need is love, love, love is all you need. Famous for a reason. Maybe you're a little younger and you can remember back to the late 90s and you remember the uh, wonderful, my favorite musical theologians, the Backstreet Boys. And their statement that says, I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long as you love me. Now, these songs are written from a perspective of two people who meet and fall in love. I'm not minimizing that kind of love. The, the, the butterflies in your stomach, the sweaty palms, the lump in your throat. Maybe it's not so great after all, but... Falling in love isn't always the best thing, but those songs are written from a human perspective, aren't they? They're, they're two people who meet each other, they fall in love, and live happily ever after. 1 Corinthians 13 is not talking about the butterflies in the stomach kind of love. It's not talking about the love that we've seen and maybe some of you have experienced where that love falls apart. That's not talking, this is not talking about that. This passage specifically is talking about a supernatural love, a love that God has, has first given to us and then we give to one another. When we gather on Sundays, we often sing songs about the love of God. One of my favorite hymns of all time is In Christ Alone, and, and the song goes through the, the love that, that God has for his people. Listen to these. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. In the next verse, 
It goes through the love of God being explained even more. Jesus was slain for us. He rose from the dead. He stands in victory, meaning that sin's curse no longer hangs over top of us. We are bought with the blood of Christ. And then in the final verse, we see God's love being played out on full display. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. See, this passage is not even, it's not talking about the love that two people have, and it's not even talking about the love that God has for us. However, 1 Corinthians 13 is speaking about a love that is impossible without the love of God first. 1 John 419 says, we loved, we love because he first loved us. We are able to love one another in Christian fellowship and in Christian unity because God first loved us. And this is what this passage points to. The blueprint is drawn. And as we dive into 1 Corinthians 13 for a few more weeks, continue to think about the love that God has. Continue to think about the love that God has for his people, but also for his enemies. The love that God would take his enemies and make them his own. Keep that in the front of your mind. Examine your hearts as I examine mine to see if we are loving in a way that glorifies God. I have three points this morning. It's pretty simple. What we say, what we know, and what we do. The first one is what we say. It's found in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. See, the Corinthians, they loved good speaking. They valued someone who was articulate, someone who could stand in front of a crowd and speak and captivate people. And they were also fascinated with the idea of tongues, this supernatural gift that God had given to people and we know this because Paul in chapter 14 talks about this, that they were captivated by speech. We as a people are often not captivated by speech as much as we are imagery, visual things. They loved impressive speech. They, they valued deep thinkers who were able to communicate well. And so Paul says that he can speak in the tongues of men, meaning that he can speak in a way that draws people to him. He can be a brilliant speaker. Or he can speak in unknown languages, even speaking many languages, even heavenly languages. But if it's not done in love for others, it's worthless. A few years ago, I was listening to... Uh, um, a program on NPR, and there was a segment they were interviewing um, a female musician, and I, I can't remember who this was, but I do remember what she said in this. She, they were talking about what albums influenced her the most, and she named a, a, a musician that never heard of before, but the name was very interesting to me. She said um, she had been listening to a lot of, of a guy named Captain Beefheart. Beefheart. I have no idea where they got that name, but Captain Beefheart. Now, I'm, I'm sure you've probably never heard of this guy, and you're probably better off not knowing him, but 
he gained a cult following in the 60s and 70s and um, found out later that a lot of modern day or modern uh, musicians have found him to be influential in their life. Um, his biography says this, his music blended elements of blues, free jazz, rock, and avant-garde composition with idiosyncratic rhythms, absurdist wordplay, and his wide vocal range. I'm sure you would all think of that if you listened to Captain Beefheart. You wouldn't. But I was interested in this guy. So never heard of him before, so I, I went home and I, I started listening to some of his music, music and went, within a few seconds, I, I realized I didn't understand any of it. I said, maybe I'm not smart enough to get this, so I asked other people, and they said, yeah, this is just noise to me too. He was seen as brilliant by, by some music people, thought he was great, but to most of us it's just noise. The lyrics didn't make any sense, and the musicians, I, and I kid you not, they sound like they're all playing different songs at the same time. Somehow that's brilliant. Some it's viewed as a masterpiece. And I'm not a musician, I'm just a normal guy. I can be a music snob at times. But Captain Beefheart just doesn't do it for me. I don't understand it. Normal people, like me, sort of, we don't understand music theory. I don't understand how this all can work together. So it's just noise. I don't enjoy it. It literally sounds like clanging cymbals. So why did Paul say clanging cymbals? He wasn't talking about somebody like Captain Beefheart who would come 1,900 years later. No, Paul was referencing a, something that would happen in the city center in Corinth. It would have made a lot of sense to the, the believers reading this letter. And, and so you pull ourselves back. When Paul wrote this about A.D. 50, mid-50s, um, before the Romans destroyed the city, ancient Corinth was known for its brass and its bronze work. So they were making things out of brass and bronze. And if you've ever seen anybody make something out of metal, there's a lot of hammering, a lot of noise. And you can imagine if there were dozens and dozens of artisans in the city center who were making their, their spoons or their bowls or their statues, that they're going to be making lots of noise. Paul would have seen this. Paul would have been walking in the city center, selling his tents and fixing his tents and and he would have heard these loud, hammering, clanging sounds. Now, there are still some places that you can go to hear this. You can go to some countries, and you will walk down the city center, and you'll hear men and women hammering metal over and over again. Now, Paul would have spent a lot of time in the city center having conversations with people. And so you can imagine this. If someone's just a few feet away, and they're hammering metal what you'd have to do. You'd either have to scream or you'd have to get right up next to someone and probably still scream too. See, the Corinthian church would have read this and say, clanging cymbals? That sounds like that, the noisy brass makers or the, the, the sculptors in the city center. That, we don't want to be there because there's no way you can communicate in that place. It, all amount of speaking is worthless at that point because no one can hear it would be worthless noise. And so Paul is saying this. He said, I can be the most articulate person, but if all around me is noise, meaning that I don't care enough to get out of that situation, all of what I'm saying is worthless. It has no value to anybody because they can't hear. The second thing Paul deals with 
It's found in verse 2. It's what we know. Paul says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. The Corinthians were not only fascinated with eloquent speech, but they also valued knowledge. Paul even says that with prophetic powers, all knowledge, and all faith, if he does not have love, they too are nothing. This passage seen in the context of the entire book is really a message to believers to exhibit love in all areas of our life. And to be loving to our community. Because here's the deal. If we love and care about each other, but we don't care about those outside of our church, what good is it? We have good fellowship with one another. Does that not turn us into a club? Where we're seeing people as, well, you're, you're not part of us. What Paul's saying is it doesn't matter how much we know. It doesn't matter how much we hey, can speak eloquent words and, and we can captivate audiences. It doesn't matter if there is no love behind what we're saying and what we're doing. This is a defining characteristic of the Christian faith, love. I'm going to give you an example, and I've used this one before because it's it's just a really good sermon illustration, and he's not here, so I can say this about him. He's not part of our church, but years ago when I was an associate pastor at a church, we, um, there was a man who had been teaching the new Christians class. And the, the, this class was for people who are not believers or have just become believers and are learning the basics of the Christian faith. So what is the Bible? What is God? Things like the Trinity, essential things, the virgin birth. And somehow over the years, this guy got into teaching about the end times. And so he, he somehow also figured out the return of Jesus' death. And I've used this illustration before, or Jesus' return. And, and I've used this illustration before where he would say, well, he can narrow it down to Rosh Hashanah. And we say, well, no man knows the day or the hour. And he says, Rosh Hashanah is two days, so I don't know which day. The Jewish New Year. And so this was problematic. So we, a couple of the elders sat down with this man. He was a nice guy. People liked him. And we sat down and said, hey, you can't be doing this. Not in any class, but certainly not in a new believer's class. This is, this is not that important. Honestly, we can have disagreements about end times, and if you interviewed all of us, we'd probably have a hundred different understandings of it. So the new believer's class is for new believers, the basics of the faith. And people loved him because they thought that he had unlocked some, with a key, to unlock these mysteries found in Scripture. And so people were captivated by him. They thought he was so smart because he knew a lot about the Bible and he, he could teach this. And it, this was things that they've never heard before, so they were captivated by this guy. And so we said, no, this is a new believer's class. And he said, if I can't teach what I want, I'm going to leave. So we said, brother, peace be with you. And so he left and other people followed after him and said we were mean to him. And, and all of these things that happened. And, and, and the truth is the church had normal biblical preaching every single week. And I think a lot of these people were bored with that. And this guy tapped into something that people wanted. They wanted something mysterious. They wanted to feel like they were in some secret knowledge, some hidden knowledge that no one else knows. Now, I use this because he was a nice guy, but he showed no love for others in the church. He enjoyed hearing himself speak. 
He enjoyed the adoration that his fan club gave to him. That they followed him in the church and followed him out of the church. It's the same type of of folks that believe that the Bible has some hidden mysteries and you just have to unlock it, these numbers, and you add this number to this number and divide it by three, and then, wow, you've got some crazy date that you can predict when the crazy things are going to happen. They're captivating to some because they've tapped into something that seems super spiritual, but most of us will be annoyed by someone who may have a lot of knowledge or think they have a lot of knowledge, but ultimately they're arrogant. They, they're smart people, but the unity of the church and the fellowship of the believers doesn't really matter. And Paul's saying that that's nothing without love, that all of this knowledge, all of this, this stuff that you can come up with, all of the followers that can, can follow you around, nothing if you don't have love. So the third area that Paul addresses is found in verse 3. So far we've seen how what we say and what we know must be infused with love or they are worthless. Paul says that we're not measured by our gifts but rather by our love. And let's just be honest, in a church world, it's so easy to be measured by our gifts, isn't it? This person serves so much. This person builds so much. This person teaches so well. This person preaches so well. This person plays music so beautifully. And so our value then is made into what we do or what we say or what we know. And Paul say, no. Your value is in how you love. Yes, those things matter, but how you love matters more. So in verse 3, he talks about what we do. Paul says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my, up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul's giving two examples here. First, he says he can give, all, give everything that he has away. He can give up all of his worldly possessions and give it away. And we know this, some people give to be seen. Walk on any college campus and look at the names of the buildings. I want to leave a legacy. It's great that someone gave $10 million to a university to build a building, but let's slap their name on it. In Matthew 6, Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. And in the streets, that they may be praised by others, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Their reward, Jesus says, is that adoration. And Jesus says the reward of a follower of Christ who devotes himself to loving others, their reward may not come this side of heaven. They may live in poverty. They may suffer. They may have a very difficult life, but their reward is waiting for them. We've seen it many times where Jesus says that something that we do or that we think it all has equal part in our judgment. Jesus not only looks at what we do, those outward things, he looks at our motivations behind it. Someone can give millions of dollars to this church or to a charity or to a college, and that's admirable, but what motivates them to do that? This is the key. If the reason that the person is doing any of that thing other than love, what they are doing isn't being done for the right reasons. So we use the church as an example. Paul's writing to a church. 
And we see this many times where Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver, right? And we know this. There are times in our lives, and, and I've experienced those where I don't want to give. Like, man, I could use that money for something else. I could use this time for something else. And so you kind of write the check, and as you're writing the check, or as you're typing in online, or doing something that he's like, oh, I don't really want to do this. Can God still use a grumpy giver? Absolutely. Doesn't make it right. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, I'd rather someone give cheerfully, certainly. And I'd almost rather say this, and I probably shouldn't as a pastor, but I don't care about the money so much. I'd rather you not give than give, I don't want to do this. Because it serves you no purpose. No good. And the next example that Paul gives, he says this, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, he's moved from gifts that have been given and all the possessions that he has, and now he's saying, I could even give up my life. And if I don't do it in love, that sacrifice is nothing. Now, some of your Bibles, if you look at verse 3, you may say, wait, I don't see burned. I see boast. Now, if you pull up the Greek, that those words are very similar. There's literally one letter changed. And so if you look up different translations, some will say both, some will say burned. The reason is one letter to be honest, and I'll dig into this in a second, but to be honest, either of those words makes sense. It really comes to the same position. That, that, that I could give up everything that I have, including myself, my comfort, my desires, what I want. I could give all of that up, but if I don't give it up in love, it is worthless. But let's look at a verse 3 for a moment. Why is there a difference? I'm not a big fan of the word burned for a couple of reasons. One, at the time of Paul's writing, at about A.D. 55, there's really no record of Christians being burned at that point. It comes later. We do have the three men in Daniel 3. We, we know that in the Old Testament. The Corinthian church would have understood that. The Jews would. But in A.D. 64, so nine or ten years after Paul wrote this letter, Rome burned. If you remember your ancient history, you remember the Emperor Nero. Whether he fiddled while Rome was burning, I don't know. It's kind of a cool thought to think about this lunatic sitting up on a hill and playing a fiddle while the whole city is being destroyed. But you remember what he did when the city burned. Who did he blame? He blamed Christians. This new group, this, these upstarts that are talking about this Jesus character, and, and it's their fault that the city is burning. In one instance, Nero covered a group of Christians with tar, crucified them, lit them on fire as a, a pathway into the city. Not a good guy. Word would have spread in the early church about this kind of persecution, so it's understandable why someone translating this could have very easily, as they're copying the passage from, from, from Greek to Greek and going and, and making it so that everybody had a copy, it's understandable that a letter could have been misplaced. It could have, it's understandable that someone would have been thinking, well, wait, burn, that makes a whole lot of sense because our brothers and sisters are being burned. 
See, seeing the history of the early church, it's easy to see how the idea of offering yourself to be burned made perfect sense. But I think it's boast. And so you say, well, wait, how does that make sense? Well, the context of how Paul was writing this or what he was writing into, um, boast could be used in a positive or a negative light. First, negative. We, we know that boast can often be seen as negative. First Corinthians 1, Paul says how God uses the weak to shame the strong so that no one what, may boast. Right? So we don't, we don't come to God with all the good things that we have, do we? No, God uses weak people with bad problems to glorify himself. And we see this throughout our lives and throughout Scripture. Why? So that we can't boast. So negative. But boasting can be used positively, too. Specifically, and Paul does this, that he says he's obliged to preach the gospel, but he's not required by God to forsake being paid for it. So God, God says that, Paul even says that a, a worker is worth his wage. So Paul's saying, I'm obliged to preach the gospel. God never told me not to take money, but I'm not going to take money just to be a blessing to others and to God. What Paul is doing is he's going above and beyond the normal call of duty that God has given to him. In chapter 9, Paul says this, but I've made no use of any of these rights, getting paid for his ministry. Nor I am writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So Paul could stand on judgment day and say this, Lord, I did more than you even asked. I became a blessing above and beyond what was expected of me. Paul talked about boasting in a positive way in 1 Thessalonians 2. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Philippians 2.16. Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or in labor. In vain. He wants us to boast in a way that goes above and beyond what we've been called to do. You say, wait, that doesn't make sense. Well, if you run a business, or if you own a business, or if you're a manager or a boss of any sort, don't you enjoy it when your employees go above and beyond what you ask them to do? Where you say, here is what's expected of you, here is what it is to do a good job, and that employee goes way beyond. They have a reason to boast. One commentator paraphrased verse 3 in this way. He said, if I dole out my possessions until all are gone, and if I surrender my body as a living sacrifice in decades of self-emptying witness and service in the fond hope that on the day of the Lord I will be able to boast of having done more than what was asked of me, and if I do all of that and have no love, it's all still in vain. On that last great day, there will be no reward for me. I will gain nothing. This, contrary to popular belief, November 1st signifies the beginning of Christmas season. And um, that's why I'm wearing a red jacket, right? This is my Christmas jacket that I wear to signify that we're in the middle of Christmas season. <clears throat> and if you remember what your parents used to tell you at Christmas, it is better what? To give than to receive. No, it's not. No, 
I want to get stuff, right? And, and don't lie, you do too. You like to receive a whole lot more than you like to give away. Except now, what I found is with my kids, I enjoy giving my children gifts. I like to see their faces. Am I giving it to be a blessing or, and I've had to think through this, am I giving it because it makes me feel good about myself? It's a reality. Man, I got him the secret present. He's going to love this. And I walk around the house kind of stepping like a peacock, right? Because I enjoy doing that. It makes me feel really, really good. It does something for me. That same scholar that I paraphrased, or that paraphrased verse 3, he says this, and it's a really helpful quote. Offering gifts to those in need has special problems connected to it. Without self-awareness and sensitivity to the dynamics involved, such offerings can stimulate pride in the giver and humiliation in the receiver. It is possible to give gifts out of our needs, which are at times unrelated to the felt needs of the very people the gifts are intended to help. It is easy to send money to build church buildings for Christians in Central Africa. But what if it's too hot inside those buildings and people would rather worship outside under a large tree? Such a gift would reflect failure in authentic love. If there is no authentic love for the receiver, writes Paul, all giving of both resources and of self is for the givers in vain. Discerning love is a necessary ingredient for everything. And I read that quote and I started thinking through what was the mark when I was a teenager of advancing into spiritual maturity? Go on a mission trip. Right? I mean, that was like the mark. You are a super Christian if you go somewhere, and the poorer the country is, the more spiritual you are. That was kind of the thought. We never talked about it that way, but that was kind of the, the reaction. And I'm not saying all mission trips are bad. Please don't hear me on that. Not all mission trips are bad. However, we must be motivated by authentic Christian love for others or... They'd simply become a reason to go to a third world country and come back and say how blessed we are here. Because we've heard that, haven't we? I mean, and maybe some of us have said that too, where after a mission trip we're talking and we just say, I'm just so grateful for living in, the, in America where we have things and we have running water and air condition and shelter. But that's not what missions is, is, and that's not what love is. Now, I'm just asking these questions here, and I'm not giving you an answer. But what's more loving, where 10 people raise $5,000 each and plop into a country and, and, and come down for a week or two and then we go home and we never go back? Or should we be sending that money to missionaries who are on the field, right? What's more loving? People are going to stay or just kind of us as visitors? I'm just asking questions. And I'm not making judgment here because each situation is different. But I am saying that few of us ever really think about this. And I've heard people say this, well, all missions work is good. Foreign country work is good. That doesn't necessarily line up with what Paul's saying. I'll paraphrase these verses for you. You can go on multiple mission trips every year, but if it's not done for the right reasons and if the needs of those there are not being met, all of it's in vain. All of it. Even good things can be done wrongly. But here is the point where we can celebrate. Because the reality is all of us are going to do that. All of us are going to do things that, that are, by definition, good things. And maybe they might be done for the wrong motivation. So what happens then? Do we sit back and sulk? 
Do we start examining every instance of our life and every motivation that we have? Even though we're blessing this person, do we, do we now feel bad about our motivations? Well, you do if you don't have the gospel. You do if you have not been given forgiveness from your sins of, from Christ. You do. That is a perfectly understandable reaction is to sit back and pout, to worry, to fret. Because you're not secure. But the gospel gives us security, doesn't it? The gospel gives us freedom to know that even when our motivations aren't right, even when our actions aren't right, that we are still forgiven and safe and secure in the hands of God. We can't do enough to please God. And even those good things that we do can often be done for the wrong reasons. Without the gospel, we have nowhere to turn. But the gospel says that those who trust in Christ for salvation are saved from their willful sins, but also from sinful motives. Love is necessary in the exercise of great sacrifice. We can serve we can give, we can teach, we can lead, we can preach, we can build up, but none of that matters if we do not have love. Non-gospel thinking would say this, you're good because of what you've done. The gospel says that you aren't good enough, but you cling to the one who is. The main point in all of this is this. Without love, these things are worthless. Without love, any ability that we have is worthless. Without love, any knowledge we have will only hurt us. Without love, no service that we do is pleasing to God. Right thinking is important, absolutely. I value the study of the, the word of God. I value doctrine and theology. Right thinking is important. Right actions are important. I value the ability to go from your mind and understanding God to the outworking and serving. I value that. We desire to live on mission, and I des that's a good thing. We should seek to care for widows and orphans. We should seek out justice and mercy. And while the motivating factors behind doing those things might not matter to others, it matters to God. Love must be the motivating factor in what we do. Love gives us meaning. Think about it. If you could say in one word, what defines the Christian life? What defines your life as a believer? What should it be? For me, it doesn't even take a second to think. It should be love. Love for each other in the church. Love for our neighbors, those people who may not be believers. Love for our enemies how many times have we heard Jesus say that? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says in John 13 this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Over the next two weeks, we're going to go deeper into what Paul is saying about love and what love actually looks like. But what Jesus says, and I'll leave you with this, what Jesus says is this. You can do all the wonderful things, the wonderful deeds in the world. But he says, people will know that you're his follower by your love. Your love for others. Your love for one another, even when we have disagreements, even when we don't like each other. Listen, the prerequisite for love is not like. You do not have to like someone to love them. 
Because there are plenty of people we don't, look, human interaction, there's a lot of people that we don't like. We can list off the names and a whole lot of people that don't like us. I get that. But are we loving towards them? This is the mark of a Christian life. They will know us by our love for one another. And so my challenge to you this morning is, is a simple one. Is your love sacrificial? Is what you do as a Christian, be it in this church or in the community or some faraway land, is what you've done a sacrificial love? Because this is what Paul's calling us to do. He's saying, look, all of those things that we do and have and we're gifted with, they don't mean anything if we're not motivated by love for God and love for each other. Next week we'll talk about this more, but, but this Christian love, it's a mark of who we are. And it leads us to do what we do. Would you pray with me? Father, we come 